Let's take our Bibles and let's turn to the book of Hebrews, this letter, as we continue walking through this wonderful letter. We have a couple of more weeks, or uh, I should say a few more weeks together in this. We come this morning to Hebrews chapter 12, and I know on the overhead it says verses 1 to 2, and your bulletin, it does as well, but I did add one verse to that because as I read through that and thought through that some more. It's, it's verse three there fits together really well with those first three as we're encouraged um, as we live this life between the two comings of the Lord Jesus. So Hebrews 12, one to three is our text. And if you're able and willing, as is our custom, would you please stand in honor of the reading of the word of God? <clears throat> Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together, shall we? Our God in heaven, this is your word. Would you now take it and would you meet it with your spirit in our hearts? Mold us and make us into the men, women, and children you've called us to be. Encourage our hearts, equip us to live in this world in which you've placed us. In my weakness, may your strength be made manifest. And would you lead us into all truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we do indeed live between the two comings of the Lord Jesus. You have heard me often say it, the already and the not yet. We live in that tension of the already and not yet. His first coming. Jesus conquered sin and death through his life, death, and resurrection. And so the victory for sinners like us has already been won. And yet we know we still struggle under the curse of the fall. There's still sin. We struggle with it. We see it. There's still death. We see it every day. We experience the consequences of the fall even though Christ has defeated sin and death and has won that victory. It's not until his second coming, it's not until the return of Christ that all things will be consummated and there will be no longer any struggle, no longer any battle, no longer any sin or death. And you've probably heard it before, often the illustration is used of this tension that we live in. The illustration is often used of D-Day in World War II, in World War II, on the shores of Normandy, that was the decisive victory that would ultimately defeat Germany and bring it into the war. And, and yet, there were still battles that raged. And it wasn't until V-Day, some 11 months later, that the unconditional surrender of Germany took place and the war was officially over. So living between D-Day and V-Day. 
There's another illustration that folks use and to try to get that point of cross and to illustrate that tension there. It's the illustration of a lifeboat where one is saved from a, a sinking ship, saved from certain death by the arrival of a, li- of a lifeboat. And, and as that person gets up onto the lifeboat, he proclaims, I'm saved. And indeed, indeed he is. And yet his feet aren't yet on dry ground, are they? And so the lifeboat then takes that person through the choppy seas until his feet find the solid ground. And of course, neither of these two are perfect illustrations, but they do help us to understand, don't they? They help us to make sense, maybe, of that tension there. We live between these two times, between the two comings of the Lord Jesus. The the victory has been won, the enemy's been defeated, and And yet we await for the consummation of all things. We await for glory. And it's this in-between time that we find ourselves, isn't it? Where we're called to live as God's people. And so how do we do that? How do we live? How do we live in light of the victory of the Lord Jesus, in light of His first coming? And how do we live in view of His second Well, this is part of what the author of Hebrews has meant to do. To prepare us for that. To equip us for that. And he has encouraged the early Hebrews and therefore us to to persevere, to endure in that time, to, to keep the faith while we live on the often choppy seas of life. And to look to Jesus, the author and founder or author author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That, That one, that one who we've already learned, who is the anchor of our souls, who has taken our anchor and placed it on the other side of glory already, placed it on dry ground for us already, So our hope in the future is indeed a certainty. It's a sure hope in Christ Jesus. And the author has given us over and over and again all of these many examples of those who have gone before us, of those who have persevered in the life of faith. And what he's encouraging now to to those Hebrew Christians and to us is you too, even as those who have gone before you have done so, you too, Run the race with endurance, the race that lies before you and fix your eyes on Jesus. This Jesus that I've presented to you over and over again as perfect. This Jesus who I've presented to you over and over again as better. This Jesus who is trustworthy, who who is faithful. Turn your eyes to Jesus, to this Jesus who is superior to all things. Keep your eyes on him. And persevere. That's the call, isn't it? That's the call. In fact, one of the main themes of Hebrews is that call to persevere. And here, the author of Hebrews then moves from that that chapter 11, where he's given us that great hall of faith, where he has indicated that which has come before, indicated those who have endured by faith, and now he turns to the imperative, that is to say, 
to the, to the encouragement, to the command even. Having seen all of this, now let us do this. And he gives us these, these concrete ways to live in light of the cross and resurrection and in view of his coming. And what are those concrete, what, concrete ways? Well, they are profound. They, they are simple. They're not easy, but they are simple. Let us lay aside every weight. Let us look to Jesus and let us consider Jesus. So let's look first. Let's look to let us lay aside every weight. And the text begins. Let me read it again. It says, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. And even as we begin here, even as we begin applying this to our own lives and our own hearts, I think it's important for us to understand the proper context. Because I think we often, or I think often when we read of these passages that that exhort us to godly living, encouraging us in our responsibility to, to persevere or even to obey of whatever the call is for us, that we sometimes forget where it is that our strength and the power comes from to do just that. You men in a couple of weeks are going to begin your study of Galatians on Sunday night and and you're going to be reminded that we don't live by the flesh, but we live by the Spirit. And the charge there is don't, don't return there. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being, uh, trying to be perfected by the flesh? We, we don't live so that we earn something. We live in a way because Christ has earned it for us already. And that's, what, that's, that's the context. That's what we need to understand. We live because He's done something for us Already, But neither, however, does that mean that because of what Christ has done, that there's not a call for us as believers in, in how we are called to live in a way to bring honor and glory to the name of the Lord Jesus. Chad and I were visiting over text yesterday about this very thing and that, that struggle there to understand that correctly. The teaching of morals we were talking about, apart from the gospel, well, that's, that's just moralism. That's just moralism. And in fact, there are a lot of moral people out there that stand in great need of the Lord Jesus. There are a lot of moral people who when that time comes, they're going to be lost and without hope in this world. We don't need morals. What we need is Christ. And we need godliness. But the teaching of morals... Apart from the gospel, yep, it's moralism. But teaching biblical morality in light of the gospel, that's godliness. That's godliness. That's what we're called to. God doesn't desire mere moralism. He desires godliness. He, he desires hearts that have been changed, that long after Him. So with that in view, think about this text. And I don't know about you, but for me, for the longest time, the way that I read this passage here about all these witnesses revealed my own tendency to perform for the sake of others. It revealed my own performance mindset. Again, it reads, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Again, I don't know how you read it, but for the longest time, I read it like this. I've got a lot of people watching me, the Bible says. 
There's this great cloud of witnesses who are watching how I'm doing. So I better buck up and do right. I better get it together and run because I'm being watched by a lot of people here. That's how I read it. You know that song, You're So Vain, you probably think the song is about you. That's me. That's me. That's not what this text means at all. At all. And it, and it may sound silly to some of you. But on, other, on the other hand, it may be the very way that you, that you looked at this passage for some time. But that's not it. It's not what we're being taught here. Indeed, there are witnesses. There's a cloud of witnesses. But not in the sense that they are watching you, so you better watch out, you better not cry. Not that. But in the sense that they, they are witnesses to the fact that though they that they did not receive what was promised here on this earth, that while on this earth, they struggled, they endured hardships, they were persecuted, and yet, yet they persevered because of faith. They are witnesses to the fact that God is faithful to His promise. And you, as you look to Jesus, you too can endure and can persevere. And when you get to the point where you say, I can't do this. Well, look at all these other ones who thought in their own strength they cannot do this. And because you know what? In their own strength they couldn't and neither can you. That's why the author of Hebrews is saying to you, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. These all persevered by faith. So take it as an encouragement. Not that you've got a lot of people watching you, so be good. But there's a whole cloud of witnesses that have persevered by faith the very thing to which you are being called. And one of the ways of doing that is personal discipline. And I know when we hear that, we think, oh, wait a minute, because now we're getting off and pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. No, we're just using that as an excuse because this, this call to personal discipline is not apart from what Christ has already done for it. You have Christ in you. You have the Spirit of God in you. You, as a believer, can indeed exercise discipline because it's a discipline by grace. It's a discipline by faith. And he says, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And so we see the picture here and it is a common picture. So this athletic image, Brandon said it with the children just a few moments ago. He even brought up the Olympics. What a, what a great example. I mean, you've, you've noticed if you, as you watch the Summer Olympics and, and we'll watch that next summer, uh, you'll notice... How little the runners wear. Why do they do that? Well, because they want the, their clothes to be tight fitting. They want them to be light. They want them to, and, and you've noticed those, those little bitty shoes they wear and how light they are. Why? Because they run better that way. They don't have all this stuff encumbering them so that they can run unencumbered. Imagine running a race against one who is dressed to run and you, on the other hand, are wearing a suit and loafers or maybe a dress and heels. And you're carrying a briefcase and a purse and a bag of groceries. That's not really fair, is it? I mean, I remember when my kids were little, 
And one of my, one of my boys, particularly as a toddler, he, he just couldn't figure it out that he just wasn't going to beat his older sisters in a race if he was trying to carry with him his cars and his trucks and his bats and his balls and everything else he owned. And I was always like, dude, you're going to lose every time. Get rid of it. Throw it all to the side and then you might have a chance at beating your sisters in a race. This is the picture that we're given. Get rid of it. All that weight and all that sin that encumbers you is holding you back from running the race to which God has called you. I was meeting with a dear brother some time ago and he had said something very simple and, and yet it was so profound. He was speaking of sin and, and yet the, the freedom from sin that we have as believers in the Lord Jesus. And he was speaking as if sin used that metaphor of, that, of a ball and chain and that so many times that even though Christians have been freed from that ball and chain of sin, even though it's been cut in Christ Jesus, it's been broken, that so often Christians, so often we, will just reach back and pick it up as if it's not been severed from us and try to carry it along with us because we struggle, we struggle to live in who and in what ways Christ has already determined us to be. Don't turn back around, pick it up. Leave it there where Christ did away with it. And if there are things that are encumbering you, throw them away, lay them aside. So I think it's fair to ask the question and application, are there things in your life that you might need to lay aside so that you may run with endurance? And notice here in the text too, it's really interesting, isn't it? That there are two things mentioned here. There's sin, and, and of course that's important. Is there sin in your life that you need to confess and repent of? Lay before the throne of grace and ask for the strength to, to leave behind? But the other thing is just wait. It may not even be sin. So are there things in your life that may not be sin in and of themselves, but they're keeping you from running the race? Keeping you from pursuing Christ? After all, the Apostle Paul says that all things, uh, while all things may be lawful, not all things are beneficial. Are there things in your life that aren't beneficial? In fact, things in your life that you've allowed to rise to such an importance in your own life that they actually have become an idol? Or you've put them before Christ and now they're keeping you from pursuing Him? Maybe those things need to be laid aside. We're to, we are to lay aside those things, to get rid of those things and, and run. Is Christ precious enough to give up those other things? And that's exactly why the author says then, okay, is Christ precious enough to you to, to, to lay aside those other things? If he's not, then look to Jesus. Remember Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Again, he's been presenting Christ as superior in all things. And so now he's saying, okay, run, run looking to Jesus. And again, 
Let's understand this part correctly. It's not as if Jesus is merely an example. He is an example, and we'll get to that here in just a few moments. But it's not that he's merely an example of, en of enduring that ultimate persecution. And, and Jesus just simply being held out for us. And the author of Hebrews is saying, look at what all Jesus did. Certainly you can do that too, right? That's not what he's doing. It's not what he's doing. In fact, here in verses 3 um, and then on into 4, as we'll get to next week, he, he does, however, kind of give this to us and say, I mean, Jesus has done this. You've not even come close to this. He does do that. But the encouragement here in this part that we're to take is that Jesus has already received the reward. He has done this. He, he, he has endured all of this and he's already received the reward. So we're to notice here where he already is. Yes, he endured the cross. Yes, he despised the shame. And I'm not making light of that. We're going to go back to that in just a moment. But look, now he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And because he is at the right hand of the throne of God, and since he had your anchor in hand, guess where you are already? You already are seated in glory. That's part of his point here. Christ received what was promised to him. And in the same way, you too will receive what's promised to you. How do you know that? Because in Christ Jesus has already been gained. Again, I know it's that already and not yet, that tension, right? It's there. But you will receive what's promised to you. So persevere, run with, run with endurance, knowing that which has already been accomplished for you. Again, not so that you'll earn your salvation, not so that you'll earn your place in salvation, but run, endure, because your place has already been gained in Christ Jesus. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. He's begun the work in you, and he's faithful to complete it. And, and of course, this, this passage, and we can see how this is, how he's doing it, it's leading us to the importance of, of discipline in the life of a believer. We'll kind of begin that this morning, but we'll get into that even more next week together. The Lord loves his own and he disciplines his own. And he disciplines us to mold us and to make us, to sanctify us into the image of his son. Why? Because he loves us as children. Jesus has won the victory. And so when, when we make our way through the stormy waters of, of, of life, we do so in light of that victory already accomplished in Christ and in view of the reward that we know that we already have in Christ Jesus. As some of you are familiar with Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth, if you've been at Trinity Grace for some time, you remember we've studied this together. Uh, but one of the great themes of that letter there in 1 Corinthians is the theme of being united with Christ. Identification with Christ Jesus in his death and in his resurrection. And, and it's so interesting how Paul deals with all the mess that's in the church at Corinth. And I know sometimes we go, oh, you know what? The church is just a mess today. And I would be so nice to go back to the, to the way it was in the first century church. Really? Have you read your Bibles? Have you seen what the first century church at Corinth was like? It was an absolute wreck. It was messy. It was, I would make the argument that's probably even messier than Trinity Grace. It was a mess. 
And you know how Paul deals with all that mess at the church in Corinth? I mean, we might think, we might think that Paul would come in and just start going, oh, oh, this is crazy. This is a mess. You're, you're this, you're this, you're grounded. You get your phone taken away. You get that done. I mean, this is all coming to an end, but he doesn't do that. He comes in or he writes to them and he says, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. How does he deal with the divisions of the church that we see in 1 Corinthians? Look to Jesus. How does he deal with the, sexual, the rampant sexual immorality? He says, look to Jesus. How does he deal with gender roles in Corinthians? Look to Jesus. How does he deal with the temptation to adopt the philosophies of the world as the church? Look to Jesus by pointing them to Christ. And he says to them, doesn't he? He said, who would join Christ with a prostitute? Why would you compete for worldly acknowledgement when you have all things in Christ Jesus? And as we learned last week, why try to gain acceptance from the world as if you aren't worthy of it when the Bible tells us that the world is unfit for us. That's what Paul does. He points them to Christ and he says, look at what you have in him. You have all things in Christ Jesus. So look to Jesus. He endured. He persevered for the joy set before him. And this part is, if you've never thought about this in this way, this is just remarkable. He persevered for the joys that was set before him. What was that joy? Well, we're told, we're told clearly that, he, that, that, that joy being, the glory restored to him as it was before the world existed. That's one of, but that's not all there was there. We say, well, what do you mean by that, Chris? What was the joy for which he came and suffered? And for the joy that he looked forward to its reward? You, a redeemed people to the glory of his Father. That was, that was his joy. Knowing that he'd redeemed a people by his person and by his work for his Father. What a wonder. And not just for the glory of his Father, but to his own. And then, and even for you in Christ even for yours, even for yours. Endure for the joy set before you. That's the call, isn't it? And what is that joy? To behold the face of God. That beatific vision. Christ and all that he has. Oh, to gain Christ. That's the joy. And, and just from a also just practical application, the forgiveness of sins, peace and comfort, the full enjoying of God to all eternity with all the blessings of Christ for you. So keep your eyes on the promises of God. Keep your eyes on Christ. Look to him. But not only look to him, but also consider him. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Think, think of Christ. Meditate on him. Consider him. 
not just in passing. And as I said earlier, Jesus is not merely an example, but, but he is set up here as the ultimate example of, of the one who has endured. I mean, think of what he's endured. And he kept his eyes on the prize. On that which God had promised to him. That promise that he would have that glory that he had with the Father before the world existed. He looked to that. He looked to, he looked to that desire to hear his Father say, well done. Well done. This is my son. And in fact, isn't it, isn't it wonderful that even years before he went to the cross, or not necessarily years, but before he went to the cross, what, did, what, did, what was said of Jesus? This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Even before, even before that, Jesus knew he was pleasing in the sight of his father. Do we live in that way? Do we live knowing that we are pleasing in the sight of our Father in heaven because of Christ? Or do we live in such a way, it's like, I'm, I am a dirty, rotten scoundrel. And you know, there's something to be said for admitting that we're a dirty, rotten scoundrel. I get it. Because we are dirty, rotten scoundrels apart from Christ. But if you are no longer apart from Christ, you have been washed clean. You have, you have been declared righteous. So get up out of the waller and the pit of sin and look to Jesus and consider Jesus and run the race with endurance. That's the call here, isn't it? None of that is pull yourself up by the bootstraps. It is look to what Christ has done and look what he has for you. So run in him. We, we, we think life between... The two comings of the Lord Jesus is difficult, and it can be. Sometimes it is. And so, because we do still live in, in view of the consummation of all things, the, this life is yet mixed with sorrow and joy. It's mixed with victory and defeat. But consider Jesus. He's endured the cross and its shame. Think about that. Let that sink in for a moment. The perfect Son of God with no sin, never touched by the stain of sin, the spotless Lamb of God took on sin for us. He became sin for sinners like you and me. Now I realize I don't think that we actually can, can grasp the weight of that. But if we spend just a moment thinking about that, think about it. If, if you desire to please your parents, you young people, or for all of us as Christians, we desire to please our Father who is in heaven and then we fail and we sin against Him and all that guilt and all that shame comes upon us. And guess what? For us, it is justified because we've earned it. But the Lord Jesus took it upon Himself, having never sinned before. And He took that shame and that guilt upon Himself so that you, brother and sister in Christ today, having been cleansed by Him, do not have to bear it any longer. One of the things that as a minister that I often, that often am, am working with our, our brothers and sisters in the Lord is, is letting go of that shame and the guilt. And it's not a, oh, you need to forgive yourself for that. That's, that's psychological bunk. But what you do need to do is realize that you've been forgiven in Christ Jesus. Rest in that and then move on. 
Move on in Christ Jesus. Know who you are in Christ. Because that's where the wonder is. That's where the joy is. Jesus has taken our guilt and our shame upon himself, though he knew no sin. He became sin for us. Consider that. And yet he still endured. He endured that for you and me, for sinners like you and me. What are we called to endure? I mean, let's face it, not that much, really. I mean, we still live the Christian life in relative ease here in the United States. We do. I mean, sure, there are struggles. There may be times that you're discriminated against. There may be times where you're mocked or your beliefs are mocked. We all still struggle with the temptation of sin. Yes, indeed. But let's be honest. We don't really have to endure all that much from the outside world where we live. And the author of Hebrews actually points this out to the, to the Hebrews. He says, in your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. We sure haven't. We sure haven't. But Jesus, Jesus shed his blood so that you may receive all that he's earned. Consider that. And notice this. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility. He endured hostility from the very type of person that he came to save. That's kind of remarkable, isn't it? It was sinners who were hostile to him. And it was sinners for whom he suffered. While we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. I, I think as much as we know the truth and as much we battle against the truth, we still somehow think that somehow we're better than all of those sinners out there so we can kind of understand why Jesus would die for me. I think we live that way practically sometimes. We never put ourselves in the position of a sinner. And even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Because we were there without hope and without God in this world. And yet Christ. That's good news, isn't it? And it's profoundly good news. So how do you live between the two comings of Jesus? We throw away sin. And, and we need to have a proper... Uh, one of our elders, I think it was Noel, said to me or texted me or emailed me. I don't remember all these ways of communication, they're just hard to keep up with, aren't they? But in some way, he communicated to me yesterday. He said, one of the things that we don't grasp is the sinfulness of sin. Or the, um, just the nastiness of sin. The dangers. We don't see sin for really what it is. Brothers and sisters, you young people, sin wants to have you. It wants to master you. And it wants to master you because it wants you in bondage. It wants to destroy you because that's what it does. That's what it does. So unencumber yourself from it. Lay it to the side. The world and sin and temptation never delivers what it promises. Never. Trust it from us older folks 
who have tried it. It never delivers what it promises. So consider Jesus. How do we live between the two comings of Jesus? We look to him. We consider him. We run with endurance. We consider the one, as Paul tells us, and I'll close with this, in Philippians. We consider the one who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. That's the Lord Jesus. Consider him. Let's pray, shall we? Our God in heaven, we do thank you for the Lord Jesus. He is our hope. And we sing about it all the time. We've sung about it already this morning. We thank you for that. Turn our eyes to him. May we fix our eyes on him, the author and perfecter of our faith, and let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. And Lord, would, would you also, as we do so, may we experience, may we experience the joy of doing so. The peace of trusting Christ. Turn our face to him, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.